Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Anna Wolfenden, Derek Weston, and Sam Chandler. Welcome, Food and Faith Podcast listeners. We're excited to have um, Alex Askew on, on the program today. Uh, I heard Alex um, doing a presentation uh, at an event for Wake Forest, and I was I was impressed by uh, sort of his resume and his work, but also just his perspective on eating. And as we are going into the holidays, this felt like a really important conversation. So I would uh, thank you, Alex, for being on the show. Thank you for having me. This is an impressive bio. I love it. Uh, at 14, he received his first job offer as a personal chef through a high school vocational work program. After six years of working at a variety of restaurants in and out of New York City, decided to attend the Culinary Institute of America and graduated in 1989. The focus on eating lifestyles and trends and new menu alternatives, he began food research, development, and consulting for companies like General Mills, Hilton, Aramark Corporation, specialty restaurants, and a host of private clients. Um, Alex has also created one of the most unique consortiums of chefs under one group, ALS Culinary Concepts, for consulting in areas of menu development, R&D, startup operations, systems and controls, training, mood fa- food manufacturing, business planning, and concept development. Um, Alex has enjoyed guest appearances on Good Morning America, CBS Early Morning Show, The Food Network. He was a 2001 Doctorate of Food Service recipient from the North American Food Service Equipment Manufacturers, a distinguished visited, uh, visiting chef for Sullivan University, uh, business leader of the year from the Marcella Brown Foundation, um, tw- uh, 2012 Distinguished New York Institute of Technology Global Leadership Award, served in the American Culinary Federation as board member accreditation commission, uh, 2014, Alex was selected as a 2014 National Kellogg Fellow in Leadership in Racial Equity and Healing Cohort. Um, Over 35 years in the restaurant and hospitality field, Alex continues his use of knowledge and experience as a foundation for further growth and development in the culinary industry. He continues the important social change work using food as a nexus and mindful eating as a platform to improve lives in the community. Woo! All right. Uh, That is a while. And... Uh, in 1993, Alex co-founded uh, the Black Culinary Associate uh, Alliance, Culinary Alliance Global, uh, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. So with all of that, um, Alex, I think you are the most decorated uh, guest we've had on the show. Um, so wonder if you could describe a little bit your geography for us. What are the places that have shaped you? What are the, uh, whether that's land, people, foods, what are the things that have shaped you and formed you into the person that you are? Well, that's a good question. I mean, um, I, you know, I was born in Brooklyn, you know, and uh, um, that, that's always going to be in, in my DNA. Um, we moved to Long Island, New York, uh, at the age of 10 or 11, but, um, you know, I would say just, you know, growing up in Brooklyn, um, which is a very diverse, you know, neighborhood, you know, our next door neighbors were Italian. Um, I still remember Tony making ices in in the front of his house. And, um, um, it was, you know, just like you would see any, uh, you know, I guess, uh, beginning of a mob story. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. In Brooklyn, it was kind of like, you know, 
it was kind of like that. Um, there wasn't, you know, it was, a, it was definitely, I would say, a unified, uh, diverse uh, community. And, you know, later on in life, and I would say, you know, in my late teenage years, you know, I just had this thing for getting on a plane and going somewhere. So I kind of like started traveling the world, um, you know, by myself. I did it as a, well, you know, I, I think I did it as an adrenaline rush because, uh, you know, just, just going to a foreign country and have, you know, just being on your own and just experiencing on your own was, uh, I felt a necessary risk to take to, you know, and to satisfy my, my, uh, exploration, uh, you know, itch. And, um, you know, with that came, you know, meeting a lot of different people in different spaces and places. So, um, I, I, I think I was always a people person, you know, I'm, 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 um, you know, my wife jokes at me because, you know, I'll meet a total stranger and within a half an hour, we'll be in this deep conversation about something. And, um, you know, she's just like, you know, there you go again, you know, <laughs> you know, um, um, it, it, it's like, I, it's not really building relationships, but building the understanding of what relationships could be. Mm -hmm. I'm so jealous of that talent. <laughs> and so and, and that is and that is such a just people who have that have a way of uh of of indeed bringing folks together and that's so much a part of your story um i wanted to ask it just as as you think about you know sort of your development um and we'll be talking about mindfulness when was it that mindfulness really became um something that that was important to you what was what was sort of the journey that 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 took you to under to an understanding of mindfulness that 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 really contributed to your to your spirituality or your self-understanding well that's a that's a really good story um you know, I've, I've dabbled with trying to, uh, you know, through, I guess, self, you know, taught books, um, you know, books that, you know, you, you, you kind of try to teach yourself mindfulness. And, and, you know, strangely enough, you know, in the black and brown community, um, there, there are some, there are some, um, you know, uh, there, there's some things that we really have to address. Um, one of them being that, you know, uh, mindfulness is not embraced. It's, you know, if you're trying to get into it, you look at it as a nerd or, or, you know, you have a weak personality. Um, and that's just really a, a lack of understanding. But, you know, fast forward, um, w during my Kellogg Fellowship, which was really incredible, three and a half years of touring 22, 23 cities, um, I really felt that I should take advantage of every single thing. I took it extremely seriously uh, out of 124 fellows nationwide. You know, everyone could say I, I was just like very, um, uh, you know, very determined to get every juice out of that great <laughs> fellowship. And one of the things was, you know, you had the opportunity to sign up for coaches. So, you know, I signed up for every coach possible. I had a professional development coach. I had a systems thinking coach. Um, I had uh, a five elements coach, which uh, was based on, you know, um, Eastern philosophy, which is a whole nother subject. 
And um, I had a mindfulness coach. Um, his name was Chris Block. He's in the book. And, um, you know, w- w- what's amazing is that um, here lies someone who, you know, for 25 plus years was practicing mindfulness, mon- you know, um, in monasteries all over the world. I mean, coaching Fortune 100, you know, uh, C-suite uh, executives and um, he was the real deal. He was the, you know, he was definitely the veteran in mindfulness and kind of um, over the course of three years, you know, gave me a deep understanding of what mindfulness was and what it wasn't. Hmm. A lot of people are caught up in, you know, what they think it is. And as soon as you label it, it it's not what it's supposed to be. And, um, you know, it's kind of like if the tree falls, you hear it crashing. I mean, you know, you really need to expand your thought and people, you know, instead of saying think out of the box, you know, what if there was no box, right? So um, I, I, you know, my assignment every city that we landed was to, you know, before dinner, scout the hotel, um, find out where we were going to meditate that next morning at 530 um hook or crook whether i was you know hanging out late with the other fellows or whatever i was there i never missed one and 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 in fact he makes a joke like he was the one that missed one and and i was the one that actually uh conducted it and so um for that reason he says you know i will i will i will do whatever you ask me to do forever um but uh i don't do that with just everybody so (laughs) that's how he became involved in the book and um you know, it was really a critical time for me, too, because my father just died. Right. And, um, you know, although people use mindfulness in different ways and different capacities, um, you know, one of the things is just to give you a space just for the dust to settle. I mean, that to me was, you know, how I use it as a tool, um, you know, to assist with my grieving and, um, you know, in great part, it was, you know, it was the necessary tool to help me get through that process. Because, you know, when my father passed away, it was like my heart got ripped out. He was my best friend. Yeah. And, um, you know, that same week, I became a father. So I can write a book about that whole week. Ooh, wow. Be- becoming a father and, lose, be- you know, um, becoming a father and gaining a friend and losing a father and losing a best friend. And so, um, but, uh, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I would say, you know, that was my entry point to also under understanding different, um, I would say different spiritual constructs, you know, some of my fellows were, you know, indigenous Native American, and they had their own practices too. And so as you start practice, I think one of the things that's really important is, is suspending judgment everyone's always, you know, weighing in on how they feel about something before they actually do it. Mm. (laughs) That seems to be commonplace. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, just to give your chance, uh, you know, your, your mind and soul a chance to just, um, you know, explore without judgment, you know what I mean? Um, And, and really try to try to connect um, with the universe, which is um, I, I, I've had some of those experiences as well. Thank you for that. Like, I really resonate with your story because mindfulness was introduced into my world when I was going through a divorce. And it was, again, sort of that idea of of having space to um, to grieve 
to self-reflect, to um, look at myself in an honest way. And it was uh, really a life-saving tool for me uh, at that period mm -hmm. of time. Um, one of the things that comes up, and, and I, I'm really glad that you mentioned this ter in terms of black and brown communities, um, but I think for a lot of communities, there's this, there's this sense that mindfulness um, uh, conflicts with your religious beliefs or, or mindfulness is a substitute for religious beliefs or, or a person's own religi religious beliefs. And you know, being that this is the Food and Faith podcast, we'll have a lot of people uh, from different faith traditions who'll be listening to this and maybe skeptical about um, mindfulness or mindfulness practices. Can you talk a little bit about the barriers that you might see to people um, practicing or, or how would you talk to someone who feels like their their own personal religious practices prohibit them from uh, mm -hmm. using mindful mindfulness practices? I mean, I really think it's it's uh, for me. It stems from um, how you were raised, um, because you know I was as a child raised a Jehovah's Witness, hmm. and you know, quite frankly, um, you know they uh, you know have a, a deep you know, sense of repelling anything that's not part of the, you know, the, their religious ideology. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I was taught that, you know, meditation was bad, you know, it's like a bad thing and actually disconnected you from God. And, um, um, you know, until you go through that, you know, breaking of cycles and barriers of uh, how you were, <clears throat> you know, indoctrined as a child in, in a belief system, that's what you believe, you know? Um, and, and then, you know, as you begin to explore, you know, you realize that um, spirituality um, is a, you know, cousin of religion. It's not a religion, you know? And, um, you know, if anything, it helps you get closer um, and more intimate with whatever religion you're part of, for example, you know, I've met people that were Christians and Buddhists and I was just, you know, like, how is that possible? And, you know, they would explain to me that, you know, um, the philosophy of Buddhism doesn't conflict with any religion. Right. It's just really about, you know, the, the, the natural order of things and, you know, uh, preservation of life. And um, there's nothing that conflicts with, you know, and so I, I, you know, I have, um, you know, a lot of Buddhist practices, you know, I mean, my religion's undefined, but, I, you know, I also feel that, you know, um, I'm a very spiritual person. And, um, you know, if I do find a religion that, you know, like that I feel naturally connected to, um, you know, I will explore that. But I think there's also something to be learned from every religion, you know, and, um, and the teaching. So, it's, you know, um, you know, I feel a little uncomfortable talking because I'm not an expert in this, but I feel like sometimes religion puts you, you know, puts you in a box yeah, and you're not allowed to go outside that box. And so, and then what's the danger of exploring outside that box? And if you believed in what you believe, you know, why would you not want to explore without that box? So, I mean, that's kind of how I feel. Um, but then in terms of mindfulness, you know, that, you know, a lot of people, you know, see that hardcore 
sitting and meditating in a chair for 30 or 60. And it's really, mindfulness can be gardening, you know, mindfulness, you know, I remember when uh, Chris, um, you know, uh, one morning said, we're going to do a walking meditation. I was like, what is this? You don't have to sit. He was like, oh, you don't have to sit. You know what I mean? Um, And so mindfulness can be applied to everything, you know, um, you know, I even cut my grass different. You know, my neighbors used to laugh at me. If I saw something beautiful, I'd mow around it. And, you know, my neighbors would come in and in my yard and be like, hey, you've got all these weeds around here. I said, well, well, I think they're beautiful. Who says they're weeds? He said, well, you know, if, if you look it up in the book and I'd be like, well, who wrote the book? And their <laughs> brains would explode on my driveway. You know, oh, my God, I got to cut my grass differently. I said, no, well, it's whatever you do in your yard, it's fine. In this yard, I allow you to live, you know, your full cycle. And and uh, that's how it is, you know. So, some, you know, in the summer, you'll see, like, patches of clover and dandelion some places. And, you know, I mean, it's not too crazy, but, I mean, it's just like, um, you know, I, I believe that, you know, if there's a connection, you see something beautiful and, you know, you should dispel Western thought about what it should be or shouldn't be. And, um, you know, to me, that's, that's the context of mindfulness. Yeah. yeah weed is such a judgment call. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, you're I mean talking dandelion. I'm like, my grandmother made some of the best stuff out of dandelion. So is that a weed or is that a crop? Right. And my son likes to pick them because they're beautiful. So is it a flower or a weed? And, you know, I mean, so, and who wrote, you know, who, who, you know, who made themselves God to say that this should be destroyed by this awful chemical that's also bad for you. So it's like, you know, but uh, I I think it's, 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 um, you know, um, uh, and also it's contagious, you know what I mean? It's like, you know, if my, if a fly comes in a house, my son's five years old, he'll be like, dad, don't kill the fly. And I'll be like, you know, why? He was just like, well, why do you have to? And I'm like, ah, that's great. It's contagious. (laughs) (laughs) Man. And so I, you know, one of the, it's, it's fun to listen to you express a great deal of curiosity about tending to sort of the interior life. Um, And even though, I mean, we are, we, we do like having these conversations in the context of faith. Um, We we want to encourage that kind of curiosity and looking outside of boxes, even though, you know, there's a lot of, you know, us and our listeners all do kind of live and, and, and breathe inside those boxes, but you're tending to the inside, but also you and your professional life are tending to the outer life as well that we're talking, you know, you're focused on eating, focused on food, um, focused on opportunities um, for, for folks who maybe haven't had opportunities otherwise. And so wanted to, wanted to move the conversation to how you connect those two things as you tend to mindfulness and tend to that inner life and, and learn principles about that. How do you then connect that to the act of eating as someone who is a, you know, who is a, a professional when it comes to creating food? What, what are some of the principles that you, that you can share that moves the interior life to the exterior life and goes about creating a better world for others? Well, there's several things, um, you know, I'll, I'll start out on the normal track and then I'll, I'll get a little weird. Um, Let's do weird. On the, <laughs> you, want weird. You want to do weird? I mean, you oh, know, wait, I no, believe let's, that, let's start oh, and let's get weird. Absolutely. Okay. 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 Then I'll go back <laughs> to starting. Normal. Okay. So, I mean, in, in terms, you know, one chef explained it to me, uh, actually two chefs recently that explained, you know, and I'm always fascinated about this work. I, you know, created and people tell me, you know, 
different things about the work I don't know. And I'm like, wow, really? I, I, yeah, yeah. You didn't, you didn't know you created that piece of it, but, and, and, you know, the thing, um, one, one chef, his name is Phil Jones out of Detroit. He said, you know, mindfulness is the, the, uh, the construct of feeling and awareness of where your food comes from, who you're eating it with, how is it harvested? How is it planted? You know, how is it slaughtered? How it was, you know, how it was fished? Um, you know, how, how is it connected to the land? You know, how is, how was that land nourished? And I was like, wow, that is incredible. And he's like that. Yeah, that is a lot. I said, man, if you are thinking about that with awareness before you eat, that must be such an experience. I mean, you, I mean, how grounded and connected is it? You have, there's no way that you couldn't eat mindfully after having that process of appreciation and awareness. Mm. So I thought that was really, really cool. The other, the other, there's a chef, um, Andre Blasphemy from uh, Dallas, Texas. He said, you know, uh, the connection with food, you know, and, and some of the reasons why some cultures like, you know, in different parts of the world, including Africa, they eat with their hands. is not because they can't afford utensils. It's the Ooh. fact that they want to touch the food. And it, it's like the difference between eating a, a, a ripe pear, you know, and having the juices drip down your cheek and the, and the, and the pheromones and, you know, that connection and, and, and trying to eat it with a knife and a fork. He's like, there's, it's a disconnect. And I was like, wow. How'd you find that out? He's like, well, I read, I read the book. <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> I was like, wow, what chapter was that in? You know, um, what, what essay was that in? And so, you know, there is, there is absolutely, can I started watching these chef shows on Netflix and, you know, every one of these shows is the chef is, is in the woods. They're, you know, they're actually um, really looking at ingredients that they don't know about, but they want to, um, you know, not only experiment with, but actually make an experience that, uh, experience that, um, you know, their patrons will, you know, have a profound, will have a profound impact. And, you know, we're, we're just surrounded by so much abundance that it's just, it's just nuts that we're not connected with curiosity or, um, you know, whatever your belief is, how it got to us is just fascinating. I mean, from plants to animals to bees, I mean, it's just fascinating when you take a really deep dive at it and we have the opportunity to connect with it. Um, you know, on the somewhat weirder part of it, I believe that, you know, um, we are connected to plants more, we can be connected to the plant kingdom more than we allow ourselves to be. I mean, um, you know, there's some science behind this and obviously some quantum physics stuff. Um, but there were, you know, food scientists that, you know, well-documented that, you know, the reason why there was a symbiotic relationship is that, you know, there was a communication between plants and humans. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, some of that is, is, is very well, uh, you know, kind of documented of why, you know, Native American sung to the corn, um, you know, in, in these vibration type of situation. And um, I won't go to the point of saying that, you know, uh, 
vegetables talk to me because I think that would be a little far reaching. But <laughs> I, I will say that, um, you know, there is a way for a chef um, and me as a chef, which is really peculiar. And um, I've talked to a couple of other chefs that are on this level, but chefs are usually weird people anyway, um, <laughs> by just nature, a creative, creative art process. But, um, you know, I think if you if you really try to ponder, you know, um, for example, I, I owned a restaurant and I made like eight course dishes, you know, an eight course dish, um, uh, eight courses, uh, you know, tasting menu just out of the onion. And people said, well, how did you come up with all these recipes are fascinating. And I said, you know, I just picked up an onion. And I said, you know, I want to represent you. What do you want? me how do you want me to represent you and i i said the, you know the recipes just came to me and they all looked at me and they said mm, okay uh well everything was great so i'm not going to argue with your process <laughs> but i mean you know i don't know you know i i can't explain what happened there but it was like you know it, it was like there was a connection and i think there's the same kind of connection i would compare it to uh people who paint um you know people that do you know, artwork, um, you know, like Michelangelo said that the art was within the, you know, the marble. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, you know, and, and it was a matter of finding it. So it's in line, although a little bit weird, it's still in line with some of the great artists. So I'm not going to, you know, um, I'm not going to try to put myself in a, <laughs> in a crazy house or anything like that. <laughs> I, think, I, think it's, I think it's connecting. I think yeah. it's connecting. And so by, you know, people that don't understand art connecting and earth connecting and universe connecting will say that, you know, that's very, very weird. Yeah. I, I don't think it's weird at all. I think there's, there's a scientific part there that you're talking about of, of humans and plants co-evolving to be mutually beneficial like that's that's science like that's that's out there and 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 you know it wasn't it wasn't uh conceived in in the way that westerners often conceive of it but like that's that's a that's a relationship um but there's also this art piece there's this creative piece that i think is is actually really beautiful and and allowing you know we we don't even spend enough time with ingredients you know uh different foods that we eat to to really think about you know, what would enhance the flavor of this? What does, what are the flavors that are naturally there? Um, I, I, I think so. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not ready to call you crazy. Um, <laughs> and you're talking to a couple of preachers who, I mean, you know, we've all had that experience, you know, I mean, and I think of preaching as sort of this, this artistic work as well. You know, you'll have somebody on a Sunday be like, man, how did you come up with that? And I'm like, it just kind of happened. And so, yeah, that, that artistic, that, that artistic muse that comes out through paying attention to one's craft makes all the sense in the world to me. Yeah. Um, even though mm -hmm. I have almost no ability to do that with food, probably because I've not been mindful enough about food. Um, that it is, it's that for me, it's often fuel rather than, rather than a spiritual practice. And that's, that's one of the things I find myself constantly coming back to is allowing food to be a spirit, spiritual practice, which I hear very much in your words. And I'm challenged to think more about as I, as I hear you talk. I, I, I think also it's, it's, it's a, it's a never ending journey. Right. And so, um, 
you know, for example, I have a pretty sizable yard and one of my chef friends, you know, said, you know, do you know what's edible in your backyard? And I said, not really altogether, you know? Um, and he said, well, that's something that you should learn. I mean, it's, you know, foraging is, is actually something that I'm going to investigate next year. And um, it, it's really, um, here's a perfect example of, you know, three generations ago, everyone knew what they could eat and what they couldn't eat. Right. You know, and nowadays, you know, it's in the, you know, middle of my yard, this beautiful mushroom springs up, you know, and my wife was like, that's beautiful. Can you eat? And I'm like, ah, I don't know how to do the mushroom test. Yeah, you mushrooms know? are tricky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I know. If, if it goes the wrong way, it could be very, very problematic. It's not good. And so, it, no, it's not. Outcome-based, outcome, outcome based, not good. And so, you know, I, I think we, you know, we need to kind of push ourselves because, you know, um, again, no matter what faith, you know, um, you know, faith spectrum we come from, you know, this, that all connects us, you know what I mean? A berry, you know, a raspberry is the same in every religion, mm. <laughs> you know? And so, um, and we have a raspberry bush. I know that's safe, but, um, you know, um, <laughs> it, it, it's really like, how do we, how do we embrace that? I mean, you know, to, to, to appreciate, how can you appreciate the abundance unless you know about the abundance? Yeah. Right. And I, I think that's, that's something everyone can do as a family, as you know, individual family and, and as a community. Yeah. I want to, um, I want to get into the book, but before we do, I, I, a question that's been, been, um, I don't know, just, just kind of, it's been in my mind and, and in my heart, I guess, how has your perspective on, on mindfulness as it relates to eating um, how has the pandemic affected that? Um, has it affected your perspective or your application of mindful eating? I feel like our relationships to food have changed significantly uh, for a lot of us um, during the pandemic. And I'm, I'm wondering if the pandemic has affected your thinking about mindfulness and mindful eating in particular. Well, it has. I mean, um, you know, I, I think there's a sense of sadness knowing that, um, you know, there's a high level of food insecurity. Mm. Um, you know, hunger is one of the <clears throat> unseen cancers of our world, you know, um, especially with so much abundance. Uh, it was brought to my attention that in, in, in the United States, there's 9 million acres of lawn, but yet we have the shortage of growing local food. <sighs> and I'm like, I'm like, and, and, and then, you know, on top of that, the chemicals to maintain the lawn. So it's I have, kind of I have like, gone you know, on this. I have gone on tirades about lawns on this show before. This so. is Derek's jam. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm, well, I'm sorry to hit a nerve. No, you're but, no, 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 it's, you all, it's all right. You're getting right. an amen out here. It's all right. Nope. <laughs> and so, um, so that's the A part because, you know, I, I, I really think that we need to use better food innovation to make, you know, I mean, we have all of this produce and, you know, I, I, I get it. Composting is good, but why aren't we dehydrating it and making it into, mm. you know, porridges where somebody who's aging well or, you know, um, needs to be on a special diet or, or homeless or hungry can find a cup of hot water and, you know, can open this packet. It's a bowl and it's just this beautiful vegetable, tasty vegetable protein 
you know, porridge. Um, and, you know, the technology exists. It just hasn't been applied to the community. I mean, you go to the stores and see all this dehydrated stuff and cereals and stuff like that. Why haven't, why haven't someone brought that technology to the community and, you know, been able to make, you know, a stockpile of, of these, you know, nutritional supplement, good tasting things that could feed so many people just on the stuff that's thrown out in supermarkets. You know, I, I, I get on a rant about this because I don't think this is rocket science. I mean, I, I think I'm smart, but I, I, this is really not rocket science to take something that you're throwing out and repurpose it to, yeah. to, to, to sustain human life. It's not rocket science. It's common sense. Yeah. And so um, I would say that's an example of a, uh, well, um, definitely a racist food system, but also a system that really, you know, it's, is, is focused on profit over people. And, um, you know, to answer your question again, I think it's just, it's just made me, you know, really, um, motivated to be more outspoken about this because, you know, when I hear about food insecurity, you know, um, I've been hungry. My father has always told me, you know, there's a difference between being hungry and starving and he starved in, in the rural South. And so, um, you know, I, I, I get the fact also that the food insecurity is going to be a lot worse on teenagers. Um, I mean, I, the rabbit hole is really deep. You know, we have a, we have a teenage suicide situation. The report was just released. Um, depression and anxiety setting in at age groups of five to 11. I mean, what type of adults um, are, are productive adults are going to be the byproduct of, unless we, you know, not only get, you know, um, social emotional support, but eating is the chemistry, you know, that coincides with, you know, any, um, any, uh, you know, any life on medication or, or not to try to have a, you know, a balance of, of, uh, you know, it's, it's what you eat. So, um, I'm really starting to look at, um, how I can coalesce, um, a movement to kind of sustainably solve that situation and build a model that could be replicated throughout the world. Because I just think it's, um, it's, it's pretty egregious that we have hunger with the abundance of food that this earth produce. Yeah. It really, it really is. It really is. And, and so what I'm, I'm actually hearing is, is a new mindfulness of the food system. Um, uh, maybe not a new one, but a, a heightened one where, where we're understanding, um, yeah, food insecurity in ways that, that, you know, we're, we're one pandemic away from lots of people starving. Um, so mm. that's helpful. Um, so mm -hmm. let's, let's, Let's shift to talk about the book. How did how did the um, the book is called Mindful Eating for the Beloved Community? How did that come about? What was the origins of that? And and tell us a little bit about the book. So uh, most of the book conceptually um, was a result of my Kellogg Foundation Fellowship uh, because you know in touring all of these cities, twenty two, twenty three cities. Um, you know, the unique thing about the fellowship is I was the only chef in the, in the whole national cohort. So anything <clears throat> food related, 
came my way, <laughs> you know, uh, as we went, you know, to a city and, hey, we need you, you know, take a look at this or talk to this person or, you know, how do we, how do we, uh, you know, look at this uh, deteriorated food system in Mississippi or wherever we were, Detroit, again, 22, 23 cities. And I really, um, you know, the mindfulness was starting to bake in, um, you know, over, over the three, the three years of the fellowship and, and, you know, with Chris really talking about, um, and sometimes he didn't even do any talking. He would just say one word. I want you to ponder it. It was really almost like a mind expansion exercise. And then, you know, I got the, the, the food part because, um, you know, there, what I saw was so many different, uh, conditions and diseases that were food related. And, um, you know, I knew there had to be somewhat of a better way. Um, and you know, the, the concept of having a beloved community, I mean, Martin Luther King Jr. was known for civil rights, but you know, he had a very big focus on health in the community, understanding that health was the key to uh, a vibrant social economic condition in a community, right? So um, we kind of sandwiched those all together. And um, I just started playing with the notion of like, you know, what, <clears throat> what, what would it look like to do a project on that? And David Castro he said, you know, um, you really need to stop playing with it and really put it in action and I'll help you because this is a really good idea. And um, I said, okay. And so he gave me this long list of assignments of, um, you know, what it could look like and what should it be. And we decided that we should start out with a book. I mean, that was kind of <clears throat> backwards. Usually you start out with programming and, and, and developing, um, you know, different models. And then you do a book. We did the book first. Mm. And um, I knew that, uh, for my work in racial equity and healing and, and, and just how you move people, you know, um, was through the power of storytelling, um, which, you know, I, I've gained insight that it's very difficult to move the mind if you can't move the heart yeah. and you move the heart through storytelling. And yeah. so I assembled um, in a very arduous fashion. It took two and a half years to, you know, um, <laughs> curate these group of essays that's really just a small enchilada of sorts of um, and I handpicked individuals um, based on their understanding of the scope um, the history and the forward-leaning impact of storytelling mm. and I wanted this group to be a hodgepodge of you know, everyone from the, you know, Chef Kabuli, who was, you know, Kenyan um, chef to uh, a white female agriculturist that understands racial equity to one of, you know, um, Dr. Veronica McClimate, who, you know, is director of nutrition Memorial Sloan Kettering to write the forward to frame things. And, you know, and then some of my brothers and sisters that were my <clears throat> fellow, uh, you know, fellows, um, you know, whether it's a, a story, um, you know, from someone who is Hispanic, Puerto Rican, my, my good friend, Victor Ruiz. And so I just really want to assemble this, this amalgamation of different stories so that people could think yeah. um, and ponder 
and use it actually as an inroad to having conversations around food and race. Mm. Um, I wouldn't call it cotton candy um, because some of the stories are very powerful, but if you did need a platform to, Hey, say, Hey, you know, let's get together and talk about some of these stories. I think a lot of people are afraid to talk about race that includes black, brown and white. And I think, you know, we, you do need some training wheels sometimes in yeah. conversations. You do need, you know, because uh, there is a fear factor that is so immense, especially now, to talk about, um, you know, the elephants and giraffes in the room. And, you know, unless we have more and more uncomfortable conversations, we're never going to have a comfortable conversation. So that was really the essence of the book. And it, um, uh, it, it's still considered early adoptive. And as that some of the stories, uh, from what I heard, there are people that have read the book five times and maybe I need to go read it a couple more times. But there's, <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of nuggets in there. And as how people are telling their story, you know, even, you know, um, you know, even from the indigenous Native American side. So I, I, I left no stone uncovered into how to have, a, you know, how to start a conversation around food, race and social justice and incorporate, you know, um, all of these different ingredients, I'll say. I'm a chef, right? Um, ingredients to, to this recipe. And the, the book has been a guide and light for our program work and building logic models, doing events throughout the country, um, you know, that focused on what this could look like and, and the adapt adaptation, um, which is something that the book uh, represents is, is word and phrase accessibility, which I didn't understand until I spoke to someone from a, a foundation um, that, you know, having word and, you know, word and, word and phrase accessibility helps people understand and meet them where they are. So if you're using words and phrases like social terms to help and plant forward and, and the communities that you're trying to serve don't understand them, then, then you, you, you default into not being effective in the you know, interactive learning goals that you're trying to ascertain. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, and that's powerful. And just your, your approach. And it, as, as, as I hear you talk, I hear... Um, just sort of the author, and and I've I've had this experience as well. The author writing to figure out what one to to discover oneself. Like it almost, you know, work we write so that we can discover kind of what ideas are hidden inside of us. Um, and one of the powerful things I think about story, and and you talk about the fear around race. Um, I fear those conversations as well. Those are those are challenging things. Um, and th those are challenging conversations. And I think I've always thought of story, you know, sort of serving as a bonfire, like it is a place for us to gather. Um, sometimes it warms us, sometimes it burns us. Um, but at the same time, like story is a place where we can gather. And it feels like a jumping off point for these conversations that need to happen. Um, and so so your approach, it seems most apropos, um, and seems rooted in the in sort of that that creative aspect that you bring as a chef and just as somebody who is curious about the world. The, the, the question, though, that I want to ask you is that, you know, for those, for, there are many of our listeners are interested in mindfulness for sure, but there are others who will say, well, mindfulness is just sort of, is something that affects you personally or affects the people closest to you. As you have done this work and you've traveled to 23 different cities and explored different cultures talking about this kind of stuff, 
what does a world what does the world look like when we eat more mindfully what are the what are the macro changes that happen in in our society like what like what what is a larger beloved community look like that eats mindfully well i mean i think that goes into um a framework of <clears throat> um several different things uh you know one is where we are which not wasting food. I mean, you know, one of the um, one of the events we participated in Detroit last year was was make food not waste. Um, we have no comprehension of uh, and and I think that's because we don't have the sense of awareness of how much food we waste. Yeah, food and, shortage um, is not an issue in this country. It's, right. Yeah. It, it's yeah not, we have plenty, but. but you know, but the fact of the matter is, is that, um, you know, we, um, we, uh, we, we sometimes buy too much food. Yeah. You know, um, you know, or we definitely are not aware of the food that, uh, you know, we, we throw out, you know, that's the A part. I mean, the B part is, is this, this, this phrase that I've been turned on to which is now um, it was introduced as, as part of what Mind Feeding's beloved community is, is uh, alimentation. And alimentation is, is basically the, the comprehensive construct of nourishment. So, um, and it's a really kind of sexy word. Every, every smart person likes it. Well, alimentation, I have to look this up. But um, <laughs> the fact of the matter is, is that when you nourish all things, the byproduct of that is health. So when you nourish yourself and you nourish your family and you nourish your community and you nourish the earth and you nourish, you know, all things, you know, the byproduct of that is health. Now, you know, I mean, um, you can say, well, how does that math stack up? Well, if you do the opposite and don't nourish yourself and don't nourish communities and don't nourish the earth, then you will be in a very uh, systemic, problematic area of poor health. And so, um, you know, this whole concept of alimentation, you know what I mean? Of, of really, um, you know, we, we, we can't um, write a check to a farmer and, and tell them to not use chemicals, but we can encourage conversations around, you know, um, locally sourced, we can encourage, you know, and, and again, encouragement is something that, um, well, I think it's a, 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 a core element of hope, right? Um, you're encouraged to survive that illness. You, you're encouraged to um, survive whatever tormented situation that you're in, you know? And, um, you know, people gather hope from that and then, you know, with hope and, and some divine intervention, you have, you know, a turnaround situation. I mean, that's to me how I study people that have turned around and communities turned around is they get this sense of hope, but it's derived by one encouraging each other. And you can do that with food as the fulcrum, mm. right? You yeah. can do that as food as a fulcrum. And um, there's this concept of sharing a mindful meal, right? Of getting together. There's studies that you know, uh, <clears throat> and science that suggests that, you know, eating with other people is more healthier for you than eating alone. Mm. 
So now there's this connective and, and there's amazing that this is on the quantum physics side, but you know, if you're feeling sad and you eat with somebody who's happy, there's this kind of, you know, this energy transfer that happens and you're less sad. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to tell the, uh, you know, the, the pharmaceutical world about this because come out, but I mean, no, you know, this pod is here for all the quantum physics you can give us, all, right, all of them. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, well, I'm just saying, it's just like, you yeah. know, that people, that, right. that there's, there's other things in antidepressants that can make you less depressed, right. you know? <laughs> um, and um, food is one of them by sharing them. And, you know, the, the whole concept of understanding what you're putting in your body I mean, you know, alkaline foods, you know, make you feel better have more energy, acid foods do the opposite, you know, food combining, you know, that's like another science. What foods work for you? You know, somebody can eat a potato and feel good. Somebody can eat a potato and not feel good. Well, feel what your body is telling you and your body's probably right, Mm. you know, and that's why people get a crave for this and that, and you know, if they're not a, um, you know, a sugar addict, I mean, for all sense and purposes, your body's saying, Hey, I think I need a little iodine, you know what I mean? Or I need a, I need some protein, you know? And so uh, if you, you have to listen. Um, And someone told me the other day, I thought that was a really kind of interesting statement, but if you're not capable of listening to yourself, you're not going to be able to listen to God. And I thought like, wow, that's, Hmm. Hmm. I'm gonna have to sit with that for a second. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that wow. was kind of powerful. Yeah, that's a lot. Um, I, before I feel like I could talk to you all day, um, but before before we uh, finish things up, I, I do want to ask you about. Um, I do want to ask you about BCA Global. Can you tell us a little bit about that and? Um, what what was the impetus behind that and and where is it now so um bca global which was founded as um really as an alumni chapter in 1996 i went to culinary institute of america which was and is still is regarded as the leading culinary institution in the world um and they are a leading institution of culinary education um as a student then and and still up to this day and we're we're trying some really hardcore conversations to bring them around it's not been the great environment the best environment for a student of color let alone the one or two um faculty of color that they've had there and so i've always had this uh sense of being a bully against racist racism (laughs) and um (laughs) The, the, you know, at age 21, um, and I was hanging out at other campuses in, 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 uh, in, in, you know, across the river at New Paul's. And I mean, I really felt personally, you know, I was, I was working on the weekends. I was, you know, making 300 bucks um, a weekend, which is like a ton of money for a college student. I had my own car and I just really felt like well, I'll do my work on campus, but this is toxic environment for me. I'll, you know, I'm not need to be on campus. I'm going to be off campus and make friends elsewhere. I mean, that was the bottom line. Um, And then what I noticed as I took a pause to really take a look at the students that looked like me, I saw their heads were down. 
Um, if you waved or I waved, I was always so happy because I was just like, Hey, I'm having fun off campus and everyone's still in the, in the fishbowl. So, you know, I, I really looked and said, you know, I need to kind of do something here because, you know, at bare minimum, if you're waving at someone, they don't wave back. That's, that's a problem. So, you know, um, that initiated me going to the leadership of the school and, um, uh, I, I, I marvel over my younger negotiating skills, but I kind of said, you know, we can, you know, we need to have a, a student chapter on campus, you know, obviously that's a good thing. And uh, I probably might've made some more aggressive negotiating tactics, but I said, you know, <laughs> let's just do this, you know, and, and option B is a, just a far worse option. Let's just focus on option A. Uh, that's a long story short of that. And so that was the student chapter. Um, which was is still in existence today, 35 years later. Um, and then after I graduated, I co-founded Black Culinary. Uh, we became the first alumni chapter for uh, Black graduates, alumni chapter, uh, uh, Black Culinary alumni chapter of the Culinary Institute of America with their seal. That was in 96. And that kind of broke the doors open. I mean, you know, we're in magazines. We, you know, everyone was professing like, we, we had changed the game um, uh, and we did, you know, not as much as what you would say changing the game would be defined as. And uh, two years later, we reformed the nonprofit um, so we could have connections with all uh, culinary institutions nationwide. And um, that became the Black Culinary Alliance. And then 12 years ago, we kind of reformed as DCA Global because we wanted to look at a global context. And we also wanted to, before this whole BIPOC, um, which actually was kind of created in terminology this year, we really wanted to look at, you know, what I call the native Asian Latin soul of things, right? You know, how do we look at the spectrums within the buckets aligned and, and, and aligned also, you know, in somewhat equal proportions to oppression and understanding uh, you know, racial suppression, you know, racial uh, inequities, um, you know, in especially in, in not only community, but in the food space. And so, um, yeah, I mean, um, I, I mean, I, I thought about handing the reins over the last few years ago and uh, everyone kind of kicked that back and <laughs> said, no, nope, you're, you're, you still have to lead this thing. And now I'm kind of rejuvenated with Mindful Eating for the Beloved Community. I'm also really marveled that now, you know, you have some really famous chefs like Marcus Samuelson who have entered the conversation, although we need to move way past the conversation, um, you know, having him some, having someone of his stature actually start to talk about race this year. I mean, obviously um, COVID is, you know, uh, shuck us really good. Like, you know, if we had to be picked up and shooken by God, that's what COVID did. <laughs> and so, you know, um, yeah, it, it took some sense, sense into a lot of us. And so um, I, I think there is a natural pathway to building a coalition, um, you know, BCA being the oldest and, and um, the first uh, and, and the only organization um you know, around food, race, and social justice in the culinary space, uh, there's room for more people, you know, um, and uh, we do want to uh, influence and encourage uh, 
people in different parts of the world. You know, we've done work in South Africa. We're going to be doing work in Asia. We're going to be doing work in Puerto Rico and the Caribbean within the next year or two. And so how do we uplift these food systems that have been decimated like a Puerto Rico that has yeah. four microclimates and it imports 70% of their food wow. and their wow. health system and their educational system has been decimated yeah. uh, without little support. And as a, a, being on this island with an abundance of vegetable protein that can be dehydrated <laughs> and, and put in some type of, you know, you know, disaster pantry, because a lot of people died because they didn't have access to food and water and they're an island. So, I mean, these things are like, you know, um, I think the key is to bring together thought leadership and to form think tanks yeah. where people can, we can forge a, under a very hot fire, the tools necessary for social change. Well, and your vision for that and the way that you're bringing people together um, is impressive and, and, and really, really thoughtful. And just throughout the course of this interview, I've just heard this constant returning to mindfulness, like quieting oneself so that one can actually address the larger systemic issues that we see. Um, and just watching that quiet, that, that quiet nature inside of you express itself in creativity and, and um, new ways of, of seeing interactions and connections between, uh, between things has just been really profound. Um, we are coming up on the holidays. And mm -hmm. holidays and food are kind of synonymous in most people's minds. And the idea of eating mindfully during the holidays might just kind of fly right out the window for a lot of people. Um, what, what ideas, suggestions, um, thoughts would you give to people about mindful eating during the holiday season? Well, I mean, I don't pass judgment on the indulgement of, of cele you know, cele um, celebratory actions. I mean, um, because that's what they are, um, you know, even to the fact that, <clears throat> you know, we have relationships with wine and spirit companies and people like, well, you know, how is that possible? I said, well, because, you know, people eat and they drink. And I said, you know, I mean, basically the practical reality is eating and drinking responsibly. I mean, you know, let's call it what it is, you know, um, um, you know, there's really nothing wrong with having a glass of wine while you're eating. I mean, I don't think that we should, you know, um, you know, demonize those things in, 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 in the, um, in not being practical, but the, the fact of being, you know, mindful in, in eating and drinking responsibly, right. Is, is that, um, First of all, you enjoy the food and you enjoy the company that you're with. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and, and, and the act of actually sharing that meal is one of appreciation. Um, you know, you're getting, you're getting full on just the relationship factors of it. I mean, which really kind of in a strange ways, in a strange way, keeps you from overindulging. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, what we want to do is make sure there's a balance. You know what I mean? I mean, if, you know, if you have a table set and there's 10,000 calories on the table, that's probably not a good idea. You know what I mean? You probably want to have some balance of some things that are indulgent and some things that are healthy and, um, you know, really look at um, appreciating um, the fact that you can have you know, your tradition 
like what do they say you can have your cake and eat it too you can have your tradition <laughs> and and you can have some um mindful eating at the same time and that's fine um uh one of the things that was mentioned to me is that you know sometimes mindful eating is really about being able to have a very very strong um conversational relationship around sharing that meal mm. and um understanding that uh you know that's a you know that's a celebratory act meaning that uh, when i tell people you know i i don't profess i don't tell you not to eat ice cream i just tell you hey make sure you know that that's a treat you know I, I ask yourself what, what when you're putting something in your body how is it serving me now sometimes that answer is going to be like not very well but just make sure that not very well is not too often right. and um you know and you can do that and that's okay um, you know, understanding where you're putting things in place, right? Um, and having that balance. Yeah, that's thank you for that. That's really helpful. I think it's it's about the non-judgment and the balance of of celebration and health. And I think that's that's really what we're what we're what we're trying to do, and in, in all of our conversations around food is kind of a celebration of a balance of celebration and health. Um, and as Derek has already said, we could talk all day about these sorts of things, um, but want to be mindful of your time. Um, and so wanted to wanted to bring this this interview to a close with a question that we we ask all of our guests. And that is the question, what brings you hope? Um, and we and we appreciate and if COVID has done anything for us, it is to it is to remind us that hope is not these airy flighty, you know, ideas that just one day everything's going to be OK, but that we work that we work hard um, and we endure the things that 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 are in front of us so that we might see a more just and generous world. And so we're curious what brings you hope as you continue to do your work. Well, I, I, I mean, I kind of live vicariously through other people. Um, just like this conversation has inspired me. It's like two cups of coffee. Um, and I think that we can get inspiration from each other. And I think we have to do that. I mean, I think there is something very powerful about energy transfer. Um, the other thing is, is I think whether it's intentional or um, a byproduct of our circumstances and, and, and uh, situations of today's society is we're, we're going to have to all come to the table. You know, we're going to have to all come to the table. We're going to have to find, you know, some, some, some will come by paved road and some will have to machete through the bush. But we are going to have to come to the table and really talk about solving um, you know, in a very sustainable way, um, the barriers and challenges and problems that exist. And so I know that, you know, it's just really a matter of time. When I started this work three years ago, three and a half years ago, Mindful Eating for the Brother Community, and here I am a chef of color, people thought I snapped. They said, oh, my God, he's, he's, he's talking some really weird stuff. You know, what is this? And um, the people that knew me the best said, you know, you've always been a few years ahead of your time, but you, you're really going to have to sit this one out and let people catch up to this. <laughs> so um, that's happened this year. I mean, you know, Hilton Effects Foundation has awarded us for, specifically for Mindful Eating for the Beloved Community as one of 25 organizations globally for innovative program work. And, um, 
you know, we are getting calls of people that understand with aha moments. I get it. I, I really, I didn't get it a couple of years ago. I get it now. And so, and these conversations, right. And the conversation um, with thread, I mean, so, you know, it's really starting to, um, uh, I I would say even beyond hope, I think it'd be uh, safe to say that it looks certain, which is the, uh, you got, you go hope and then you, you know, then you get into that certain, you know, that certainty bracket. It feels good because you know that it's going to happen. Um, Alex, this has been such a wonderful conversation. If people want to reach out to you or, or learn more about your work, where are some places that they can find you? Right. Well, if they're interested in a book, um, you can go to the book. It has its own website, loveisfood.org. Loveisfood.org. Um, the BCA's website is bcaglobal.org. Very easy to remember. And my email is alex at bcaglobal.org. We'll get well, all that. And I'm all over, we're all over social media, so you know that's that's really easy to find as yeah. well. Awesome, 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 Alex. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, thank you for for just the great wisdom that you've given us, and uh, uh, we'll, we'll hopefully we'll we'll talk again because I feel like there's still a lot of things here that we could we could go deeper. In. Oh, we're just starting. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, this yeah. is this is just chapter one. Chapter yeah. one. I love it. <laughs> And whatever your celebrations look like this week, we pray they're wonderful for you and the ones you love. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I send out prayers and blessings for everyone to have the best, smallest story. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you know, we're all going to be sitting around a table with pictures of family members like they do in the stadiums, but that's, that's fine. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll get through this and uh you know, I think it's 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 really important for for everyone to even have a sense of appreciation in this nonsense of a world we live in right now. Um, it, it really helps buoy, you know, your um, well, your just spirituality, right? You know, um, yeah. and as that, we all need to be uh, like someone referenced. We all need to be that cork that's like kind of ebbing and flowing in the waves, right? We need to be fluid, you know. Um, and fluid in our thought and fluid, you know, and, and, and how we handle things with, with awareness. So thank you very much. Uh, this was, uh, I'm ready to, I'm ready to kick off my day in a very fierce way. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the food and faith podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest School of Divinity, Plain Song Farm, the Garden Church, and the Keep Until. Editing is by Derek Weston and music by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.